I loved nighttime when I was a kid. I would love going over to a friend's house, spending the night, being able to stay up so much later than when I was at my house. I love being able to do new things that I wasn't necessarily normally allowed to do, eat, watch, play. It was, it was a fun time. But as I got older and got the ability to drive, one of the things I started having fun with was, was pulling pranks. My friends and I were known to be pretty good at TPing houses. Now, now seeing this now looks very different because back then there was no shortages of toilet paper. <laughs> there were no empty shelves of Charmin. Now looking at this, it looks like such a waste. You know, after we kind of waited in line and checked in incredible number of stores to get toilet paper. But back then that was a fun thing to do. If we were a little bit frustrated with you, we would kind of spray some water on the toilet paper so it stuck to the trees more. We had lots of tricks. If we really didn't like you or you'd made us mad, we'd go over to your house and we'd stick forks in your grass. If we were really mad, we'd break the forks at the ground level so they were harder to pull out. Sometimes we would uh, put Kool-Aid in your sprinkler heads. And when you turn the sprinklers on in the morning, it was a, a spray and rainbow of, of red or purple or blue. Um, we even sometimes did pink flamingos all over your yard. We had a really good time at night. And so as I look back on that period, I go, man, there were some fun things that happened at night. But as I've gotten older now and I've left childhood and moved into adulthood, I, I don't always look forward to nighttime. See, nighttime is the time in which I battle insecurity, self-doubt. Nighttime has been those moments when I've been plagued by panic attacks or anxiety attacks. Nighttime is that moment when all of those thoughts come, come racing in. Nighttime has been that time where I've been tempted or pulled in directions I really don't want to go. And I don't know about you, but, but nighttime looks a lot different now than it did back then. And the reason that I bring that up is that today we're going to look at a conversation that happened at night. And in the same way that I think you've experienced, people tend to be more open to conversations at night. I remember a few years ago, I went on a road trip and we got in a deep conversation once the sun went down and things got dark in the car. So many times around a campfire, conversations emerged that would have never happened around a table in a restaurant in the middle of a day. And we're going to see in this conversation at night today, something that I think we all need to learn. We're in a series we started last week called When People Meet Jesus. And over these six weeks between February 21st and April 4th, between Ash Wednesday and Easter, we're looking at six different people who had an encounter with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus that revealed something about them. As we look at it today, their encounter reveals something about us as humans. And each of these encounters teaches us some profound things about Jesus. And so our prayer is, is that in looking at those moments when those people met Jesus, that we ourselves here, 2,000 years removed, that we would meet Jesus, maybe for the very first time, or maybe afresh and anew. And each week we're looking at a specific character 
in the story, somebody who was a real person who lived long ago. Last week was a guy named Andrew. Today is a guy named Nicodemus. If you're taking notes today, I've titled this message, Nick at Night. For those of you of a certain era who will get that joke, Nick at Night. And as we look at Nick's story today, here's the main idea. We're going to see that seeking Jesus is, is riskier than we realize. If you're going to seek Jesus, if you're going to go and have a conversation with Jesus like Nick did, if you're going to explore who he is, I just want to warn you that it may be riskier than you realize. Because Jesus' primary concern is never our comfort. He often seeks to bring change that takes us out of our comfort. So today, if you want to follow along as we dive into Nicodemus' story, I'd encourage you to open up your Bible to John chapter 3. Now, a lot of times at Cornerstone, we would read a passage like this in its entirety, but this one's a rather long one, and we're not going to touch on every verse. And so we're going to kind of read it piece by piece as we go along. But if you have a Bible or you have a Bible on your phone, please open it up and head to John 3. John is the four of these four Gospels we're reading during this series, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's written by Jesus' closest disciple, whose name is John. And in John chapter 3, in Nicodemus' story, we see three lessons that we can learn from a late-night visitor. And, and we're not just looking at Nicodemus' story. We're looking to say, hey, what can we take and learn for ourselves? And here's the first lesson I, I want you to pay attention to. That being religious is not the same as being born again. To, to be religious is not equal to or synonymous with being born again. And we're going to see that in this first section of John 3. Here's what we read in the text. John 3 begins this way. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God for, for no one could perform these signs that you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked Jesus. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I have told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night, and there are lots of different explanations across 2,000 years of faith for why Nicodemus would do that. Some people say that Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night because it was Passover and the, the city was exploding with people. At that time, Jerusalem's population was about 600,000 people. And it's possible that due to people who'd come to the city for that celebration, that there were two to three million people there. Can you imagine there being like five or 600,000 people crammed into Prescott? That's kind of how it would be. And so maybe it was because he was looking for just a quiet moment with Jesus. It, it could also be that 
Nicodemus was coming at night so that no one would notice he was there. He was part of a group called the Sanhedrin. It was a ruling group amongst the Jews. He was one of 70 members of that group. He was a powerful leader and figure. And maybe he came to Jesus in the darkness because he didn't want anybody else to know he was talking to him. The Sanhedrin wasn't necessarily fans of Jesus at this point. But either way, when he begins this conversation with Jesus at night, Nicodemus begins by, by, by flattering Jesus, by complimenting Jesus. And, and sometimes when people compliment us or flatter us, we kind of ask ourselves, what's your agenda? But, but everybody likes to hear nice things about themselves. Everybody enjoys receiving a compliment. And so Nicodemus begins by saying, Rabbi, we, we know that you're an incredible teacher. We know that God is with you. There's no way you could have the insight that you do or you could perform the signs and wonders that you're doing if God wasn't with you. He, he's complimenting Jesus and he calls him by a, a term of respect and endearment, Rabbi. A rabbi was a recognized teacher. It was a status symbol in, in the Jewish society. And it's very rare for someone as young as Jesus, 30 years old, without the formal education that Jesus did not have to receive that title. And, and so for Nicodemus to recognize Jesus's significance is, is important, but he doesn't recognize yet who Jesus is. He thinks he's just a good teacher. When in actuality, Jesus is much more. And immediately Jesus begins to speak to Nicodemus, showing him that his limited viewpoint that he has right now is not nearly as strong as he think it, thinks it is. I kind of imagine in this moment, Nicodemus is standing on some, some crumbling stairs. Yeah, they're giving him support for the moment, but he has no idea just how weak and incomplete his understanding is. And, and we're going to see that as he goes on. Jesus introduces this idea that, that you need to be born again. If you're using another translation other than the one I read from, your, your Bible might say born from above. Nicodemus thought he was good. He was a teacher. He was an expert in the law. He was as religious as religious gets. But Jesus says, that's all well and good. But if you aren't born again, if you aren't born from above, you will never see God's kingdom. He's saying to Nicodemus, it's great that you're religious, but being religious is not the same as being born again. I'm not coming, Jesus is essentially saying, to make people religious. I'm coming inviting people to be born again, to be born from above. And, and this invitation is echoed throughout the pages of Scripture. If you go back to the book of Ezekiel, one of the prophets, hundreds of years before Jesus came, this kind of transformation was foretold. The prophet said, speaking on behalf of God, that I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. It, it foretold this transformation that the Messiah would one day bring in the hearts of people. After Jesus has died, been crucified and gone to heaven, the apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. It, it continues this idea of a rebirth and a radical transformation. If you look at 1 Peter 2.9, another book written by another disciple of Jesus, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous lights. Again, 
You see this theme of of moving from one state to another, not just becoming religious and doing religious things, but but at its core, radical, uh, essential identity transformation. Even in the book of 1 John, another book written by this guy who wrote the Gospel of John, John writes, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. And again and again, you see this same message that Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I didn't come to just teach new thoughts on religious ways of life. I came to introduce a completely new paradigm, a new message that invites people not to be religious, but to be born again to be spiritually reborn and move from death to life, from old to new, from darkness to light, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. This way of Jesus, it's not about doing what we've always done. This way of Jesus is about becoming someone we've never been. And this is why Nicodemus is going to struggle with what Jesus tells him. Is Nicodemus is expecting a slightly different twist on what he has always done. But Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to experience transformation at his core. To become a person he's never been. And maybe along the way, you've gotten the idea from the church or Christians or the Bible that, that, that we're just really concerned with you doing certain activities, certain religious acts, attending church and reading your Bible and praying. And none of those are necessarily bad things, but they aren't the end. The end is us becoming who we've never been through Jesus Christ. The end is us becoming born again, born from above experiencing the power of Jesus, taking us from who he found us as and helping us to become who he created us to be. See, this is why I said seeking Jesus means you may have to unlearn some things that you've held dear. And that's going to be the struggle for Nicodemus. And that may be the struggle for you, that there are some things you thought you knew There are some things you learned along the way. And sometimes seeking Jesus isn't just about learning some new things. It's about unlearning some new things. It's about some ways of seeing the world you picked up along the way that no longer work. And you have to go through the painful process of unlearning those things. Nicodemus is now beginning to hear from Jesus, hey, this religious thing, it's not the same thing as being born again. That's the first lesson for us. Second one is this, that Jesus's words, they don't make sense to everyone. From the very beginning, this is the beginning of one of the accounts of the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus's words, they don't always make sense. The people who hear them don't always comprehend and and grasp what Jesus is getting at. We see here in in John 3, verse 9, Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? Jesus replied, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Some scholars believe that 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 word translated a as an article in in language could also be the, that Nicodemus may have played a role as a, a, a widely known teacher. He may also have been the primary teacher 
in that period in Israel. And Jesus is saying, hey, you have this, this clout, this position of teaching, and yet you don't know these things? Truly I tell you, Jesus says, we speak what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I had told you about earthly things and you don't believe, then how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Nicodemus is struggling to to wrap his head around what Jesus is introducing to him, this, this new way of seeing the world because he's so locked in the way that he's always seen things before. And and Nicodemus is struggling. He's saying, hey, how can this be? And Jesus is like, you're supposed to be the expert. You're supposed to be the person who knows more than anything else on this topic. And yet you don't understand. It's, it's not um, insignificant. It shouldn't be lost on us that even from the very beginning, there are people who've misunderstood or found it hard to grasp what Jesus is teaching. The way that he's introducing Even the Apostle Paul remarks about this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Multiple times over the last year, I've heard from people either personally or seen their words online as they struggled with the words and the teaching of Jesus. They'd say, yeah, there's no way you could do that. And, you know, I, I don't know how you wrap your head around that. that. That way of living doesn't work. And I go, so what you're saying is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're just going to throw out that thing that Jesus says because it doesn't make sense to you. And, and I'll be honest, there have been times in the last year as I've read the words of Jesus and I'm like, oh, how does that work? That, that, that runs counter to my natural instincts. That doesn't make sense to me. It's not a new problem that Jesus' words don't make sense. And it's not a new thing that people would think they understand the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of Jesus, when what they believe ends up being far from it. Fifteen years ago, a couple historians and sociologists began studying the, the beliefs of teenagers in the church in America. And in 2005, they shared their findings in this study in a book called Soul Searching. Christian Smith was the more well-known of the two writers, and and he and his co-writer termed a, a, a description for the common beliefs of teenagers in the church about faith. And their term for it was moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Moralistic in terms of being about the the things you do right or wrong. Therapeutic, the purpose is to feel good. And and deism, deism is an idea that that God has created the world but is not uh, intimately involved anymore. This is in contrast to theism. Christianity is a theistic faith. We believe that God created the world and is still intimately involved today. And they came up with five descriptors of what they found as common beliefs pervasive in American church attending teenagers. And I would tell you that as a pastor who's been serving in churches ever since this study came out, that these beliefs are common and pervasive, not just in teenagers within the church, but adults too. The first of the five that they found was this, that a belief that God has created 
and order the world and watches over human life on earth. One way you could describe this view is God as a watchmaker or a caretaker, that God created everything like a watchmaker. He maybe is there to take care of it, but he's not intimately involved. And this idea runs starkly in contrast to the teaching of scripture, that, that God didn't just create everything and sits back and make sure that nothing really blows up or goes wrong, but that God is intimately and, and directly involved in our lives and the world. And yet many people just kind of have this view of this, you know, man upstairs, old guy with a beard who was there in the beginning, and he's kind of there still, but not really capable and not really involved. Number two, that they found that, that the common belief was that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught by the Bible and by most world religions. Within this belief is, is this inherent sense of universalism and positivity that, you know, all the religions basically teach the same thing. And, and God really cares about positivity. So be good, be nice, be fair. The problem is, is that if, if you were today to go to talk to somebody who was a devout Muslim, if you were to talk to somebody today who's a devout Jew, if you were to go find today a, a devout Buddhist and you said, hey, are the teachings of your faith in your holy book the same as these other major world religions? They would go, no, they're not. They're fundamentally different. And yet th there's a pervasive belief, not outside in the culture, but also inside in the church, that this is what God cares about the most. False view. Third, the, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. This is the self-esteem and happiness message. And, and while I, I don't think God's goal is for us to be miserable and feel terrible about ourselves, it isn't the central goal. And you see that again and again in the pages of Scripture. If you hold up this view against the experiences of the heroes of the faith described in Hebrews 11, this view does not work. But this view is widely held. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. I, I call this the on-star or tech support view. God is there in your life. When things get hard, push the button and call on him. When something breaks, you know, reach out to him. But how often do you think, if you have a car with OnStar, about using that button and who's on the other end when things are going well? We don't typically think about tech support until our computer breaks. And this view of God is that God is not necessarily involved in our lives when things are going well or when things are going in the right direction. He's just there to fall back on when something bad happens. Friends, the scripture does not offer us a view of God as our cosmic butler there to wait on us and do our bidding, clean up our messes and solve our problems. That's not the view that, that we get when we read the story of Jesus. And, and if this is the view that you have, I'd encourage you to join us in this reading plan. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then hold up these five views and say, do, do these work in light of what Jesus taught? what he did, what he said in his own words. Number five, within moralistic therapeutic deism, the common belief is that good people go to heaven when they die. I call this the goodness curve. It's this belief that at the end of the day, you know, God grades on a curve. We're not as bad as certain people, but we're not as good as certain people. And there's a curve like there would be on a test in school. And so adjusted for 
the performance of everybody. We'll be in a good place. We're good. We're going to go to heaven when we die. The problem with that view is why did Jesus have to come? What we're celebrating in a few weeks, Good Friday and Easter, why did that have to happen? If good people go to heaven when they die, then, then why did Jesus have to die? See, I think there's a lot of us that were so like Nicodemus. We're trying to make sense of what Jesus is teaching us. And the temptation is to adjust Jesus to either the view of our world or the view that we bring to the words of Jesus. Instead of letting Jesus be the true north on the compass, setting our direction and adjusting our view in light of Jesus's words, the temptation that we face here and now is will I adjust to Jesus or will I adjust Jesus to me? I had this experience just just last month. I, I read through the reading plan in January that we started last week. You can get a copy at prescottcornerstone.com slash devotional. If you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, our host will put the link there right now. And I was reading through a passage sitting in a coffee shop. It was a a passage that was a, a rendering of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. I think it was in the book of Luke, the, the longer versions in Matthew, the shorter versions in Luke. And I was reading Jesus' description of who's blessed. And he said, blessed are the poor. And I thought to myself, I'm, I'm not poor. Not by the world's standards, certainly not by American standards. Jesus went on, he said, blessed are the, the hungry. He said, man, I feel pretty full from breakfast and I haven't missed a meal in a really long time. And he went on. And in each of the things he described, it was the opposite of my experience. I didn't make it anywhere in the listing of the blessings. But as soon as those were done, Jesus wasn't done. I kept reading and he said, woe to you who are rich. And I said, gulp. Woe to you who are full. And I found myself looking through the list of the woes and all the woes described me. None of the blessings did. And as I was sitting there in that discomfort, I remembered that that's what happens when we let Jesus's words speak for themselves and we adjust to Jesus rather than adjusting Jesus to us. Friends, if it's been a long time since Jesus's words didn't make sense to you, I want to invite you to go on this journey with us through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because when you read the words for Jesus, the words of Jesus as he said them, you're going to be uncomfortable, you're going to be challenged, and things are not going to make sense, and you're going to have to decide, will I adjust to Jesus Or will, like the old Gumby toy many of us used to play with, will I adjust Jesus to fit where I already am today? Number three, third lesson from Nicodemus' story is that Jesus came to bring salvation, not condemnation. Jesus' purpose in coming was not to condemn people. It was to save people. And we see this in one of the most beloved sections of all the Bible, beginning in John 3.16. 
It says, for God so loved the world, sorry, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in Jesus is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. The passage begins with that well-known verse that I misquoted because this is a different translation. I grew up reading a translation that said, for God so loved the world. And, and my sense was that God so loved the world, like it was this description of how big God's love was for the world. Like Scott so loved Chick-fil-A sauce that he tried to get the biggest container possible. That, that, that would be my so loved. But here, the, the word so loved is translated maybe more clearly in the CSB, where it says, for God so loved the world, translation, for this is the way that God showed that he loved. This is the way that God showed that he loved. How do you know God loves the world? How do you know that God loves you? How do I know that God loves me? This is the way that he showed us. He sent Jesus that if we believe in him, we believe in him, his humanity and divinity is one, his perfect life, his death on the cross for our sins to pay the penalty we should have paid for our sin and brokenness. We can experience eternal life, not beginning the day we die, but beginning now. And, and Jesus goes on here talking about the fact that, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. See, the reason why, whether it's Jesus or John, some scholars disagree here, whoever wrote these words that were inspired and made it in the Bible, the reality is that before Jesus, we were all condemned. As, as John 3 tells us, we love the darkness. Our actions, we, we like to hide in the darkness. You might say, Scott, that's, that's not, not, not true. Okay. Then can I have your password to every account you have online? your text messages, your emails, your social medias. And then let me share those with the world right now. For all time, anything you've ever said, I'll share it publicly. See, the truth is all of us have stuff in our lives that we'd like to keep in the dark. Whether it's a message history or a browser history or a past history or a current reality. There are things that we'd love to hide in the dark that if we're honest, are wrong and evil. And the truth is, is before Jesus, we were all condemned for those things. That's why Jesus had to come. Now in Jesus, we have a living hope for salvation that Jesus knows everything that's in your browser history, whether you've erased it or not. Jesus knows everything you've struggled with, whether you're honest about it or not. Jesus knows everything you've ever said or sent or posted or deleted or shared. And in him, 
We have a living hope for salvation and we no longer need to be ashamed of those things if we've put our faith in Jesus because we've been born again. He's brought us from darkness to light, from death to life, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And in Jesus, we have this hope that he didn't come to condemn us. We were already condemned. He came to save us and set us free to bring us from darkness into his marvelous light. But the truth is, without Jesus, we remain condemned. We don't live in a world where there is a uh, grading on a goodness curve. Jesus came because our sin and condemnation was that bad. Our brokenness was that extreme. The consequences and the situation and the context was that severe. So late one night, when Nicodemus goes and knocks on the door of Jesus and has a conversation, he thinks he's just going to learn a little bit more about this new teaching from Jesus. What he has no idea is that Jesus is going to challenge him and turn his world upside down, offering him an invitation. See, Nicodemus learned that night what I hope you're learning today, that that seeking Jesus, it's riskier than we realize because what Jesus is inviting us to do is maybe bigger than we thought before. Before we close today, I want to offer you some next steps. If you're taking notes, these are on the back of your handout. Here's the first one. Reflect on the question, what would you ask if you had a nighttime appointment with Jesus, if you got a night like Nicodemus did to have a conversation with him, what would you ask? What would you talk about? What would you bring up with Jesus? I love the story of Nicodemus because in scripture, it it doesn't fully resolve. He leaves the, the house of Jesus without any sense of what he did with what he was told. Later on, there's a moment in the story of the gospels where Nicodemus raises kind of a question with his cohorts in the Sanhedrin about Jesus. He, he kind of, you know, has a thinly veiled support statement of Jesus and he gets shouted down really fast. At the end, after Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus brings some of the spices and the materials to prepare Jesus for burial. He's there as Jesus is laid in that tomb that he'll walk out of three days later. And some scholars believe that that Nicodemus actually became a follower and believer in Jesus after the resurrection. There's some scholars who believe that Nicodemus was actually baptized by, by Peter. And church tradition holds that Nicodemus ended up losing everything because he put his faith and trust in Jesus. We don't know all of what happened beyond a shadow of a doubt when it comes to this man. But we know, at least for sure, that what happened that night in that conversation, it changed everything. It took Nicodemus from a nighttime conversation to the grave of Jesus as he was being buried. And I wonder for you, what's the conversation you need to have with Jesus? A conversation he might use to change everything for you. Number two, I want you to review the five components of moralistic therapeutic deism, that framework we covered in point two, and ask yourself, are any of those similar to your own view of God and the world? 
I'll give you a quick review here. I mean, do you have this view that God's like a watchtaker, watchmaker or caretaker? He's not really involved. Do you believe that all religions are the same? For you, is, is feeling good and self, self-esteem king? Is, is happiness your ultimate value? Isn't that doesn't make you happy? You, you don't go that direction. Does God, your, your tech support that you really only interact with when things are bad? And, and do you believe that God grades on the goodness curve? And friends, these views are popular, but I'd encourage you that if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with us, they don't compute. <laughs> they're, they're not going to fit together. You, you can't hold these views and hold that the scriptures are true. But the truth is, even though many of us say that we believe Jesus's words and believe in scripture, so often these are the dominant views that drive our life and behavior. And so I just want to encourage you, look over these, Google moralistic therapeutic deism and ask yourself, has this stuff crept in to my heart and mind? And then number three, identify the risk connected to your next step with Jesus. What is Jesus inviting you or calling you to do? And identify the risk associated with that. Again, we live in a culture, as we just talked about, that, that pushes feeling good, being happy, having high self-esteem, positivity. But I will just tell you that following Jesus almost always calls us to step away from our comfort. Following Jesus is not a guarantee that you'll always be comfortable, that you'll always be positive, that you'll always be happy. But following Jesus, while it's risky, It's the path to take to the life you were created to live, to the person you were created to become. Yeah, seeking Jesus, it's riskier than we realize. But the person that we're risking with and towards is worthy of that risk and and he's worthy of our trust. Let me pray with you today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures. We thank you for a a record of a conversation that you had at night with a guy named Nicodemus. There are places in our lives where there's a little bit of Nick in us. His struggles are not that different from ours. And we pray that today in the the light of day, you would speak clearly to us and show us what our next step is with you. Yeah, it may be risky. Yeah, it may be uncomfortable. Yeah, you may challenge us. But Jesus, we pray that we would never adjust you, edit you, contort you, or twist you to fit us, to make us more comfortable, more at ease. We pray that we would be the ones who adjust, that we would be the ones who repent, that we would be the ones who align ourselves with you, open ourselves up to you, and allow you to bring the transformation and change in us that you want to. Help us to see you and hear from you as we follow your steps each day this week. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I encourage you as we sing this next song, to reflect on the invitation Jesus is offering you out of darkness and into his marvelous light.